You're listening to CRST, the podcast from Bryn Mawr Communications. Hello and welcome to CRST, the podcast. I'm Dagny Zhu, a cornea, cataract, and refractive surgeon in Roland Heights, California, and I'll be sitting in as the moderator for this episode, which will feature discussion of select articles from CRST's April issue on medical and surgical solutions for complex corneas. Joining me for this discussion are two of my fellow contributors to this issue, Dr. Nandini Vankataswaran and Dr. Caroline Wilson. Thank you both so much for joining me today. Thank you so much, Dagny, for having me. I'm Nandini Venkateswaran. I'm a cornea cataract and refractive surgeon at the Massachusetts Eye and Ear Infirmary. Awesome. Welcome, Nandini. And Dr. Wilson, please introduce yourself. Yeah, thanks, Dagny. I'm Caroline Wilson. I'm the current anterior segment fellow at Vance Thompson Vision in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Thanks for having me. Awesome. What a great place to be. Thank you, Caroline, for being here. I'm so excited to be discussing this episode today where we're going to cover all types of solutions for complex corneas from medical to surgical treatments. And three of the articles that we're highlighting today range from a new, just FDA-approved um, pupil modulating presbyopia eye drop that has a place for improving visual uh, outcomes in complex corneas, as well as a tried and true office procedure that we've been doing for a while now to treat our keratoconus uh, patients. And finally, a third surgical treatment, which is hopefully soon to be FDA approved, uh, the IC8 IOL, which will hopefully find a place for improving visual outcomes in our irregular corneal patients. And so I'm going to kick things off with a brief overview of my article on the benefits of a small aperture IOL in eyes with corneal irregularities. So as we all know, as cataract surgeons, sometimes optimizing visual outcomes for our patients, it's more than just removing the cataract. And it's especially difficult in those patients with corneal irregularities. And we're seeing a lot of those patients more and more today, those who have had refractive surgeries in the past, like RK, LASIK, or PRK, as well as those with history of corneal transplants and scars from trauma. And they tend to get in the way of our patients from achieving optimal outcomes. And previously, the only options we had was, you know, giving these patients you know, hard contact lenses after even providing topography-guided ablation to correct some of those irregularities, but not all patients are amenable to those treatments. And so now there is this soon-to-be FDA-approved IOL uh, that utilizes pinhole optics to decrease some of those corneal aberrations, and that is the IC8 lens. And we're expecting approval this year. And what makes this IOL very unique is that it has a 1.36 millimeter central aperture, which utilizes pinhole optics to optimize visual quality while also extending depth of focus. So it's actually based on the camera inlay um, and so uses those pinhole optics to really kind of get two birds with one stone. It optimizes visual quality while also giving patients a little bit more depth of focus. And so, Patients that we're hoping will benefit from this IOL include those patients with really advanced, higher order aberrations, corneal irregularities. And we can think about using this IOL in patients who we 
think will have limitations in their best corrective visual acuity with cataract surgery alone. So if you have a patient with a cataract, but they, they have limited, you know, um, limited visual correction with spectacles, but you seem to be able to improve their vision with a hard contact lens, those are patients that you could consider uh, implanting the IC8 lens. And it's also a great lens because of how forgiving it is. Um, there are some studies from our colleagues overseas that shows that it has a broad landing zone. And so patients are able to have good visual acuity, even up to one diopter of defocus and one and a half diopters of astigmatism. So it's perfect for those cases where you have trouble hitting the target, like post-RK patients, post-LASIK patients. And so... Again, we're able to offer these patients not only better quality of vision, but also perhaps give us more flexibility in hitting that target, as well as providing some extended depth of focus. So some of the overseas colleagues uh, have published um, studies showing presbyopia correction with the IC8 lens. So aiming just a little mini mono with the IC8 lens in the non-dominant eye around a half to you know, minus 0.75 diopters of myopia seems to give them some increased spectacle uh, independence. And so this is also great for those patients who otherwise may not be a good candidate for premium IOLs. Um, not only can you, you know, not only are these patients limited by their higher order aberrations, um, but we can still offer these patients some presbyopia correction as well. And I think everyone deserves a chance at spectacle uh, independence. And that's the beauty of this lens, I think, because we are able to not only improve visual outcomes and visual quality, but even give them a little bit of presbyopia correction. So Nandini and Caroline, what are your thoughts about the IC8 lens? How do you think it might fill a gap in your practice? I'm actually really excited about the IC8 lens. I think, you know, when I'm in a cornea practice and I'm seeing my keratoconics, my post-trauma patients, my RK patients, and I don't have many options for them because they often have such irregular astigmatism. So even with my RK patients, I'll think about a toric, but I'm not confident that they're going to get the best possible spectacle acuity. Um, just given the intrinsic higher order aberrations. And so I think the IC8, because of how forgiving it is, is going to give us the opportunity to give them a, a larger range of vision. It, I think if, you, if it can forgive about a diopter and a half of astigmatism, that's great. That's going to help so many patients. I, oftentimes I'm just offering them a monofocal and I can't accommodate for a lot of those irregular astigmatism portions. And so now with the IC8, we're able to accommodate for that. And I think they'll be really appreciative for more of a functional range of vision than what the standard monofocal can give them. Yeah, you know, before we were using the monofocal just to, in hopes of not worsening their higher order aberrations, but now we have a lens option when it's approved to potentially improve their higher order aberrations and make things a little bit better. Caroline, what about you? What have you seen um, in your fellowship? What sort of patients do you think might benefit from a lens like this? Yeah, so I I think the pinhole technology is really exciting. You know, uh, thinking about where the IC8 is going to fit, I first thought about the light adjustable lens and how we're using it for complex corneas and how the IC8 is going to fit compared to this light adjustable. But I think the beautiful part of it is in those RK patients who have ongoing fluctuations, that pinhole effect is going to be there 
regardless. Whereas with the light adjustable, once it's set, it's set. Um, so I, I think for those patients, just having the, the steady effect of the pinhole will be really beneficial. I guess I have seen some IC8 patients post-op during my fellowship here because we were part of the trials, Vance Thompson was, and uh, most patients have been fairly happy. And there were some of those mini mono patients. I'd say that in general, uh, folks were happy. Some of the issues I, I, I worry about myself that have come up um, are centration, you know, with that small 1.36 millimeter aperture. I worry a little bit about the whole alpha angle um, situation. And, and I don't know how that'll play out. Um, and maybe there were some issues with glare around it. But I, I think in general, it's going to be a great technology that a lot of patients are going to benefit from. Yeah, that's a great point you brought up because not everyone's going to be a great candidate for this lens. Just like with any IOL, you have to be careful with patient selection. And we talk about some of this in the article. Like you mentioned, centration is a big issue. And so you might, you know, exercise some caution in patients who have, you know, any signs of zonular weakness or larger angle alpha or kappa where you might not get that perfect centration. And in terms of the halos and glare, I feel like overall our colleagues overseas have seen minimal dysphotosis because of the pinhole effect, but I have also heard in larger pupils because the pupil dilates around that annular mask, um, you might get some halos or glare too. So nothing's perfect. So thank you for bringing those up. All right. So now let's go ahead and switch gears and we're going to talk with Caroline um, to provide a summary uh, and overview of your article. Uh, management of patients undergoing epi off cross-linking, which you co-authored with Dr. Vance Thompson, your fellowship director. So tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, yeah. It was really fun writing this article with uh, Dr. Thompson. But, you know, I, like you had mentioned in our intro, cross-linking has been around for five years in this country. It was approved by the FDA in 2017, um, the epithelial off protocol. Um, and so I think a lot of us are, are pretty familiar with the perioperatives considerations. Uh, but this, this article just got into what we're doing at our practice and uh, was really a, um, a base for discussion. But just to re quickly review cross-linking, I don't th think I need to spend too much time with this as most of our listeners are going to be familiar. Uh, but the epithelial off cross-linking protocol involves the removal of eight to nine millimeters of the central corneal epithelium followed by the application of riboflavin drops and UVA light. And the riboflavin and UVA react to form reactive oxygen species that form covalent bonds between the collagen fibrils and really strengthen the cornea and help prevent further ectatic progression. So looking at which patients are candidates for this procedure, really any patient that's showing signs of ectatic progression. The, it was approved for keratoconus and for post-refractive uh, surgery ectasia, but it has there are some reports showing use in pellucid marginal degeneration, uh, but it's not approved for that. It's been studied in patients as young as eight years old. The approval is for ages 14 and up. And the insurance companies are covering cross-linking with certain criteria that came out of the FDA trials. That doesn't mean that you can't do cross-linking on patients that don't fit those criteria. It's just as a conversation with the patient about the risk and benefits and, and the cost of the, the procedure. But the, the main 
FDA trial criteria were a change in a spherical correction of at least half a diopter, a change in cylinder correction of a full diopter, or a change in K-max of a full diopter in a 24-month period. And these can be followed with uh, contact lens fittings, manifest refractions, uh, or just auto Ks. When when we're thinking about which patients are good for this, you know, I it's, uh, there's a lot of our patients out there with keratoconus, with bad ocular surface disease, with atopic disease. Um, and so we have to be a little careful about who we're selecting for the epithelial off protocols. Uh, as we all know, there are protocols around the world that are looking at epithelium on options as well as accelerated, but those aren't approved yet. So this is, I think, what a lot of uh, we are doing still in the U.S., um, but I worry about those patients with really bad ocular surface disease, if they're going to heal. Uh, and so really controlling a dry eye, um, a, a neurotrophic patients is so important for this. Um, also they're, they are atopic disease. So one of the first questions that I've been trained to ask when I walk into the room of a patient that we're considering for, for refractive surgery or for cross-linking is, how often are you rubbing your eyes? And Dr. Thompson wrote a great excerpt in this article about uh, patients saying, oh, I never rub my eyes. I never do. And then they really start to pay attention to it. And so bringing it to their attention can be really helpful in helping educating them that they can induce their own ectasia. They can change their own prescription just by rubbing their eyes or sleeping on their their arms at night, uh, which we call pillow diving. so a good education for these patients that even after the procedure, it's really important that they quit rubbing or they, they quit uh, sleeping with pressure on their eyes uh, is important. So and even, we'll even give these, these patients goggles to sleep in. So the, the preoperative management of behaviors and of the corneal surface is paramount to success. And so we do the procedure and afterwards the, the main things that we want to be concerned about is getting the patient to heal. So when the epithelium's off, getting a BCL on, um, treating any inflammation with a topical steroid, we use prednisolone, uh, treating them with a prophylactic antibiotic, we usually go for a fluoroquinolone, we use moxifloxacin. Uh, some people uh, will use topical Prolenza NSAIDs. They say it helps with pain. We don't at our practice. I think it's a great thing to do. Uh, there's some concern that it can delay, you know, the corneal healing. Um, but I'm not, you know, I, I don't have enough experience with that. And then there, there are some folks who will use, will give the patients topical preparacane or tetracaine after. We don't do that at our practice for the cross-linking. Uh, but it may help to control their pain for the first 48 hours, as long as it's control in a controlled setting. So as far as complications go, corneal haze in the FDA trials, corneal haze happens in the majority of patients, 60 to 70% of patients, but it's gone at one year. And corneal haze seems to be a sign of corneal remodeling because there's more haze in patients who have greater degrees of keratoconus or ectasia. But again, most patients have resolution of that haze after a year, after the remodeling has really set in. Of course, the thing that concerns this is an infection, keratitis. It's pretty rare though. Uh, and the, the patients at greatest risk for this are the ones who have had bad ocular surface disease, blepharitis, 
prior to surgery. So really getting that under control is paramount. The last thing that we I worry about is uh, delayed wound healing. And again, screening these patients for evidence of neurotrophic problems, uh, limbal stem cell issues is important. Really treating their ocular surface, again, important. Uh, but if you, you know, worst case scenario, you can't get it to heal. The first thing you think about is really lubricate the ocular surface. Uh, if you still can't get it to heal, uh, sometimes a herpetic infection can be a cause of delayed healing. So considering that, especially if they've had a history. Uh, and then if those don't work, you know, go, going the full route with uh, amniotic membrane, torsorophies can help as well. We don't see it very often. Usually our patients heal quite nice. And then as far as patient expectations after, it's important for patients to know that they're undergoing this procedure just to prevent further progression of their keratoconus. And that is, while they can get some benefit uh, in their vision, it's not always dramatic. And so they were, are going to continue to need correction through glasses or for through hard contact lenses after. And there's there should also be an expectation that their prescriptions are going to change. Over the first year, the cornea tends to flatten on average a, a diopter or two, and it can can continue to change for up to ten years. So just letting the know letting the patients know that their prescriptions may change, I think, can be important. And and then back to the eye rubbing, just really modifying those behaviors. And then the last thing is just making sure we're following this patient these patients pretty regularly, every three months or so for the first year. And then yearly after, 90% of these patients 10 years out are perfectly stable, but that's still one in 10 that are going to progress again. So really, really important to keep following them. So those are the lessons that um, I've learned this year. What do you guys have to say? Yeah, Nandini, you see a lot of keratoconus. You do a lot of cross-linking in Boston. What are some of the pearls or tips or tricks that you've learned over the years? Yeah, I mean spot on Caroline with the eye rubbing. It's the first thing that I ask and the thing that I emphasize even postoperatively after cross-linking. I can't tell you how many folks continue to rub their eyes even after we cross-link. And that can actually allow for further progression, even if you've had a very successful treatment. I recently had a woman, she had post-LASIK ectasia and I cross-linked the eye with you know, severe ectasia. She's doing great, but she's such an eye rubber that her fellow eyes started to, started to show signs of inferior steepening all of a sudden as I was watching her. And I was like, are you rubbing your other eye? And she immediately recognized that she was doing that. And I followed her monthly and you could actually see the topographies change as she modified her behavior. So that to me was so demonstrative of these are an actual behavioral modification that can enable you to prevent, you know, further progression or ectasia. So that's one of the key things. I think it's also important to let patients know it's okay to retreat. We do see progression despite cross-linking. And so patients are always so fearful, you know, what if I progress, what happens? You know, I think overall cross-linking is a very safe procedure. And so we can safely retreat these patients and allow them to achieve stability and get good visual outcomes um, after the procedure. And I think the wound healing is key. For the patients I'm worried about their epithelium, I watch them very carefully. They're in bandage contact lenses for a little bit longer, or I'm switching out the contact lenses based on the fit to allow better oxygen permeation and, and drop penetration onto the ocular surface so that they're healing. And most times they'll heal, and seeing haze initially is good. 
you're seeing the epithelium remodel, but you'll see that fade with time and you'll see your topographies change. We use the Pentacam. So the compare maps are critical for me. I'm comparing them from their preoperative topographies to every subsequent topography. I monitor them every three months and you can see that initial steepening sometimes. And then by month three to month 12, they're progressively flattening. So I think keratoconus patients are some of our youngest patients and some of the best eyes that we save as cornea specialists. Yeah, and I love, Caroline, how you mentioned that sometimes when you see the haze, that's a sign of actually greater flattening in those corneas. And it's normal to see haze. It actually peaks around one month, I think. And then at three months, it starts to fade and get a little better. Have you noticed that as well, Nandini or Caroline, that the corneas with more haze tend to be the ones that get the best um, flattening or maybe even uh, refractive outcome? Absolutely. Yeah. I, I think the amount of haze is a direct correlation with how much flattening we're going to be getting. And I just let patients know that their, their vision is going to continue to improve. Yeah. Well, I mean, the goal of cross-linking is to halt progression, not necessarily to improve their vision. But I think if we combine, you know, some of these different modalities that we're talking about, even with you know, that Nandini is going to talk about next, these pupil modulating drops. Um, and also, you know, what some people are already combining, you know, cross-linking with intacts or topography guided PRK, you know, we have even additional tools in our toolbox to further enhance their visual outcomes uh, when we combine it with cross-linking. So it's just exciting times to be in today. Um, and also what we can provide for our keratoconus patients. So actually, let's go ahead and switch gears and talk about Nandini's article where she's going to give us a summary of this new pupillary modulating drop and how we can use it to treat complex corneas. So tell us a little bit about your article, Nandini. Sure. So, I mean, it's been an exciting time for us um, in seeing all of these new agents in the pipeline to modulate pupil size. We just saw Allergan uh, obtain FDA approval of Vuity, which is pilocarpine 1.25% for the treatment of presbyopia. And that's the first actually marketed drug for presbyopia correction and for pupil modulation. But a lot of us have been using other pupil modulating drops off label already, bromonidine at lower percentages or even pilocarpine 1%. So this concept of changing the pupil size to increase depth of focus is starting to be applied pretty widely. And I think there's a lot of interesting off-label applications for it, especially in a cornea practice. And I think I started noticing this as I was seeing more and more irregular corneas. And with so much talk about the small aperture lens, I think it's a really nice opportunity to use a non-invasive strategy to try to improve patients' depth of focus as well as visual quality. So in my article, I talk about a few different conditions that you can think about trying to use a pupil modulating drop off-label. So like we talked about, we have folks who have keratoconus or LASIK or PRK, and they have potentially very irregular ablations after laser vision correction. And most of the time, the best lens that I can offer them is maybe a monofocal or a monofocal toric. But now you could consider, but now they're walking in and they're saying, hey, doc, I learned about this EDOF lens and this trifocal lens. I want this. I want to be able to see a larger range of vision. Well, I could give them their monofocal or their monofocal toric, but then accompany it with a pupil modulating drop. And that might give them more of a depth of focus or range than what they would be able to achieve with just a traditional monofocal. 
You could even apply this to your normal pseudofakes. Say you use a low-add multifocal or you did a little bit of blended vision with minus a half or minus 0.75 in the non-dominant eye. Using the pupil modulating drop may increase that depth of focus for them and give them more range than they had initially been able to achieve with the lenses that we placed in the eye. Um, you know, fluctuating vision, I think, is another great application. Our RK patients or our patients with severe ocular surface disease can have varying refractive errors throughout the course of the day. And so these pupil modulating drops can shine in these scenarios where patients are using it at certain times during the course of the day and finding a better quality of vision. I see a lot of patients with corneal scars and they get a ton of light scatter, ba largely based on the size of the scar or the location of the scar. And so reducing the pupil size can actually significantly reduce the light scatter and reduce their glare and halo phenomenon. You know, with your in your IC8 article, you made a great point that if that scar is located right in the location of the central aperture, it may not work very well, but maybe we could try a drop and the drop can modulate enough of the pupil to mitigate that sense of glare and halo, you know, more so than a permanent intraocular lens. Um, so those were the major things that I wanted to highlight. I, I think there's a lot of these off-label uses. I saw two patients in clinic today that I had keratoconus or had irregular stigmatism that I prescribed Vuity for. And the first patient that actually brought this whole concept to light for me is I had a patient who I did a panoptics on. He had a minus one and a half diopter refractive surprise that I didn't expect, but I had used Myocol at the end of surgery. So on day one, he was 20-20 with a small pupil. Only at week one did I notice that he had a refractive error. And he's like, can I try that pupil drop and just use it to help me when I need to, to compensate for the other eye? I'm totally happy when the pupil's smaller. So these are the types of patients you're like, all right, let me try that off label, see how you like it. And then you continue to find your normal presbyopes you're doing a comprehensive eye exam for, and you can prescribe it for them too. So I think lots of exciting applications, and we're going to see so many new agents as well from other companies that are launching their products, which are in you know clinical trials right now. So it'll be exciting to see where they fall in our armamentarium. Yeah, wonderful summary, Nandini, about how to use these pupil modulating drops to help some of our surgical patients, almost like a rescue drop. You know, there's a lot of off-label applications for that, and um, it has a lot of the same benefits as the IC8, IC8 lens. But as you mentioned this is non-invasive. It's just a drop. It's completely reversible. So you can give it a try in all of these patients who don't want to commit to surgery or for these patients that you've already operated on and they just want a little bit more near or a little bit less glare. So I had been using pilocarpine 1%. Uh, sometimes 2% uh, for patients who had, you know, bad dyspotopsias at night. But I do find that the beauty drop seems to have a better tolerability profile. They really don't complain about the headache as much. Um, and um, the, only, the only side effect that I think we should be worried about for all of these pupil modulating therapies is a little bit of dimness. I think that's something that I, I hear from my patients. Um, so Caroline, have you had experience with any of these uh, people modulating drops and how do you counsel some of these patients on what to expect when, when using them? Yeah. So in our practice, we've had more patients, uh, who, more phagic patients using it. Uh, we haven't had as many pseudophagic patients use it, though I love that application and how versatile the, the drops can be. Um, the, the patients who have been on it, the phagic you know, younger presbyopic, starting to be presbyopic patients. I find that the people who are using it too young, uh, maybe, you know, they're got 
you know, they're wearing plus one reading glasses or so. Those are the ones that actually seem to complain the most um, and say that they they have distance blur. And I'm just, you know, I'm wondering if they're going into accommodative spasm. Um, but the older patients have been pretty happy with it. Um, some patients have tried one eye, some have tried both. Um, the main thing that I, I tell them is maybe just don't use it at nighttime. And they're fine with that. I, you know, they're getting six hours or so while they're doing their computer work. Um, and those are those are the ones who have been the happiest, the ones who do just a ton of computer work. And uh, yeah, they they not many side effects. But I'd love to I'd love to start using it more in the pseudophagic uh, population, and because I think it's, it's such a beautiful indication. Yeah, I, I I had a patient recently, a couple of weeks ago, she was unhappy with her. Um, extended up the focus IOL that I had put in. It wasn't enough near. She couldn't hold the mirror to see well enough to apply her mascara. And I, I even tried like um, giving her a trial for mini monovision, but, but then it blurred the distance too much. And then finally, when beauty came out, I, I trialed it in office and she was like, wow, I can see, I can see my, my makeup application. I can see in the mirror. And I, I wrote that prescription so fast <laughs> for her, but it's just great that we have, you know, more things to offer these patients now, you know, there's a lot of different things that we can try. So it's a very exciting times. Well, thank you so much, Caroline and Nandini for joining me today. That does it for us on this episode of CRST, the podcast. Again, Drs. Wilson, Dr. Venkateswaran, thank you both so much for joining me and sharing some of these new medical and surgical solutions available for our patients with complex corneas. And thank you all for listening. Until next time. For more on the articles discussed in this episode and to read all of those featured in the April issue of CRST, head over to crstoday.com. And for more shows like the one you just listened to, check out the podcast channel on itube.net.